All right, children, you may be dismissed for young disciples. If you've got kiddos here, grades K through 6, they are welcome to accompany our group down the hall for our children's church program. They'll be studying the story. I heard the two- and three-year-olds studying the story this morning, which was awesome. They said, what did Moses say to Pharaoh? And I heard at least one little two-year-old, well done, Lily Roper, saying, let my people go, which was awesome. Uh, the rest of them were playing with cars, but Lily was listening. Well done, Lily. If you see Lily today, tell her I said well done. All right, well, we hope that you are getting the most out of the story. Uh, we hope you're involved in a life group. As Pastor Otto mentioned, if you're not and you're newer, please go to the website or stop by our Welcome Center. We'd love to get you connected so you can get the most out of the story, uh, do the study that we'll be doing throughout the week, the study that the kids are doing, the youth are doing, the young adults are doing, that the older adults are doing. We hope you'll do that. We also want to make mention just again that you can go to our website under the Grow tab and under Media. If you ever miss a week, you can catch up with the sermon. Uh, we now have that on video, thanks to a generous donation. And uh, we also have some sidebar things on our YouTube channel, the Victory Life Church YouTube channel. And uh, I noticed that a number of you had watched a little sidebar conversation we did this week called The Redemption of Judah. And so there's great ways to engage. I want to make one more mention before we get started this morning, and you can be turning in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1 uh, this morning. But I want to make one more mention to you this morning that uh, remember, if you are going through this story as a family with, with kids who are still in the home or grandkids that you see regularly, we encourage you, uh, reinforce with them what you're studying throughout the week. Take some time to ask them some questions from your study guide. Or if you go to the back of the storybook, there's great questions that you can ask the kids and the youth that are in your home. Make sure that as you're teaching the kids, you are also reiterating and teaching and remediating yourself on the elements of the story. So get the most out of this uh, as the weeks go by, and we hope you're really enjoying this series thus far. Years ago, uh, our church got to take a missions trip to Hungary, uh, which is in the former uh, Soviet Union, but you know is an autonomous state, and we were working with a missionary who would take the gospel into villages that had not heard the gospel since before communism. So in many cases, they were taking the gospel to places where it really had not been proclaimed. The name of Jesus had not been proclaimed in over 60 years in many cases. And we had the opportunity to, to go to Hungary and to partner with this missionary who had a, a bookmobile, but also taught the kids to play baseball because that was a big thing in the country at that time. So we got to go and we got to do the bookmobile, we got to play baseball, we got to share the gospel. But when we got to the main village that we'd be serving in, I have to mention to you that it was very disconcerting. It, it was not a warm welcome. In fact, the welcome made the polar vortex look steamy. Uh, we were used to many of us having been on missions trips before to Central and South America, where folks hug you, invite you right into their home, want to talk your ear off. Eastern Europe was a little bit different. Uh, folks were not real interested in us. They did not really want to have too much to do with us. They were very suspicious of us. And we found out later that some of them thought we were gypsies. Uh, <laughs> that true story. Uh, and it wasn't a warm welcome. And when we got there, it was like, how are we ever going to share the gospel with these people? They won't even open their front doors to say hello. Well, interestingly enough, the night before we arrived in, this, in the town that we'd be working in, God had sent a massive storm. You say, why do you say God had sent a massive storm? Well, 
What ended up happening is their soccer field, which was sort of the central hub of this village, was strewn with branches and fallen limbs off of trees. It was just completely beat up. And when we realized that nobody really wanted to talk to us, we said, all right, well, why don't we just go clean up the soccer field? Well, as we did, some of the villagers stood from afar staring. They were interested to know what these group of Americans were doing, and by the time we had taken a few hours to clean up their soccer field, word had spread that we weren't gypsies after all. We were decent people. By the end of our time there, it was incredible. I remember our very last night after we'd shown the Jesus film and the missionary was encouraging folks to come to know Jesus. A a woman who was in her 80s came and very emotionally told our missionary, she says, this is the first time I have heard Jesus talked about since I was five years old. Since I was five years old. God accomplished his purpose, and and what was really neat is when we left, a church from a local city decided that they would start sending teams into that city or into that village on a regular basis. But I have to tell you, when we arrived, we were very fear-filled. We were feeling quite frail. No one was really interested in having anything to do with us, but by the time we left, the gospel had been proclaimed. God had accomplished his plan, and that's what we want to talk about today. Today, our, our, our sermon is entitled Deliverance, and that's the book or the chapter in the story that we're going to do. Now, deliverance is a good word, but it also connotes that something bad has happened. If you need to be delivered, something not, something not so good has happened that would cause the need for that deliverance. And we're going to find for God's people something not so good had happened. In fact, something terrible had happened. But in the midst of something terrible happening, God accomplished his will. And he did so through a faith-filled individual. This story of the Exodus is really God's introduction on a world stage. Yes, God has revealed himself to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, but the the world does not yet know him. They have not yet heard of God. Well, this is God's great big introduction on the world stage. And through the deliverance of his people, we're going to find that his plan tells us a lot about who he is. And just to sort of show you the pattern of what we're going to be following today as we talk through the story, we want to mention that God will accomplish his will. And he will accomplish his will through faith-filled individuals. And God will accomplish his will despite human sin, despite human fear, and through a sacrifice. But how do we get to this point in Exodus chapter 1 where folks need deliverance? Well, You remember from the previous weeks of the story that God had promised Abraham that he would have a great nation come from him, a people that would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And we learned last week through his great-grandson Joseph, he had preserved his people and allowed his people to flourish. You see, there was famine in the land, and Joseph, through a number of different circumstances, ended up as a leader in the country of Egypt and able to preserve the lives of those in the famine through God's gift of his interpretation of dreams. Joseph is in Egypt. His brothers come, and he is able to provide food. He's able to provide land, and he's able to provide protection for the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we find out in verse 6 of chapter 1 of Exodus, you can look down in your Bible, that God keeps his promises, the promise specifically to Abraham. Look at verse 6 and 7. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation had died. But the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly. They increased in numbers, and they became so numerous that the land was filled with them. 
Not the land of Canaan, where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived, the land of Egypt. Egypt becomes, for the Israelite people, the great incubator of the ancient world. They're kept safe there. They have food there. They, They have land there. In fact, the archaeological evidence shows that to live in the land of Canaan, modern-day Israel, from 1800 to 1400 B.C. would not have been a good thing for a small people group like them. It was a very warlike time. So not only were they driven to Egypt by famine, but God's incubator of Egypt keeps them protected through the many years that they're there. Except that at this moment, we find out that God's plans and his purposes can often be affected by human sin. Because we find out as we look down in the pages of Exodus that the pharaohs forgot about Joseph and his brothers. They had no regard for them whatsoever. And they began to fear and dread the Israelites. And they decide that they should put them in bondage. Make them slaves in order to control their population. In order to use them at their whims. In order to keep them from rebelling at some point and overthrowing the nation. A grievous evil. And we sort of see that in, the, in spite of, of, of that evil, God's plan continues to unfold. Look at verse 12. But the more the Israelites were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? So, so the more that, that, that human sin, human wickedness is impressed upon these people, God still shows his power because they continue to multiply and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and they worked them ruthlessly. So th- this, is not, this is not Joseph in the household of Potiphar having the run of the place. This is chattel slavery. This is the worst kind of slavery. They were worked ruthlessly as a means of population control. See, the sins of humanity are always present here on this earth, but God's plan is still present in the midst of it. People can do evil, people do do sinful things, but God is continually bringing about the expansion of this nation of Israel, even in the midst of their slavery. But the Egyptians don't do the right thing. They don't say, go home. We've had enough of you. Thanks for your time here. Instead, they enslave them. They treat them ruthlessly. And we find out in chapter 1 that it gets worse because the Egyptians begin to participate in infanticide. They begin to kill off the Israelite babies in order to create a population control mechanism. Grievous evil. We don't want to miss that today. Because with such a grievous and wrong thing taking place, you would assume that God's hand is completely gone, completely out of it, that God won't have anything to say about it. But he does. God plans to deliver, and he plans to use a man named Moses. Named Moses. Now, this is one of the most famous stories from the Bible, isn't it? This is one that even if you didn't grow up in church, you probably saw something about. If you weren't watching Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments, you were watching the animated version of Prince of Egypt. You know this story. Moses was one of these children that was supposed to be killed. He was one who wasn't supposed to make it. But his mom devised sort of an ingenious plan. Hide him in a wicker basket and place him in the reeds in the Nile during the day. I I think that's pretty smart. Let him float, rock a little bit, maybe he won't cry. Except that something happens, he's discovered. 
discovered by Pharaoh's daughter. But this daughter, instead of exterminating this little boy, decides to adopt him. She decides to bring him into her household, even though he's an Israelite. Miriam, Moses' sister, who is supposed to be looking after him, runs up and says, hey, would you need a wet nurse for him? She says, yes, I would. Well, I happen to know someone. Moses is raised by his own mother while also being afforded the education and the protection of the palace. This makes Moses pretty unique. He is an Israelite Egyptian, which, which should be an oxymoron. But, but that's what happens. This is the way God begins to unveil his plan. He begins to make it happen in Israelite Egyptian. He, he is raised for decades in the household of Pharaoh. In fact, the historian Josephus tells us that Moses even rose to army commander within Egypt. That's what Josephus says. You would think that this would be a good person for God to make the deliverer, to allow to be key in the plan to bring about the freedom of his people. But Moses has warts. In fact, Moses, just like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is not perfect. Well, let's just come right out and say it. Moses is a murderer. One day he sees one of his Israelite brethren getting beat by an Egyptian. And in his anger slays the Egyptian, kills him. Manslaughter, second degree, whatever you want to term it. He kills this man and hides him. But his sin is found out. His life is in danger. He's going to be killed and he flees from Egypt. The deliverer is sort of an escaped convict. He's someone who should not be on anybody's radar for the deliverer. He goes across the Sinai Peninsula. He settles in modern-day Saudi Arabia, what is known as Midian. And who, the man who sort of will become the great deliverer becomes a shepherd for his father-in-law in Midian. He's got some warts. In fact, he's not even in Egypt anymore. But one day, as he takes his flocks into the Sinai Peninsula, he comes across a bush that is burning, yet is not consumed. He hears a voice from the bush that says, Come here, Moses, and take your shoes off. You're standing on holy ground. Turn in your Bibles to chapter 3, because God is about to call Moses into the fray. Chapter 3, verse 6, Then God said to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites. God is going to fulfill his promise. He's going to bring the descendants of Abraham into Canaan. He's come down to rescue them. I imagine that Moses was like, yes, God, I'm in exile because of this very thing. I, I murdered a man. Because of the evil of this slavery and this ruthlessness, I, 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 am, I am paying the penalty. I'm so glad you've come down to rescue your people. Look at verse 10. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. I imagine the fist pumping stopped 
at this moment. In fact, we don't even need to guess what Moses was thinking. Moses, through the rest of chapter 3, tells us exactly what he was thinking. Uh, No. No, I'm glad that you have come to rescue them, God, but I am not going to take part in this endeavor. Moses raises all types of objections to God. God, you, you don't want me for this. I am bad at public speaking. Can't do it. It's the number one fear among most people is having to speak in public. Only crazy people get up and preach and do things like that. Not only that, he just says, God, I, I, I just I can't. I, I just can't. Can't you send somebody else? He even says, I, I don't even know you that well. He makes all types of objections to God. And God's undeterred. That's the great thing about chapter 3. And I've preached chapter 3 many times over the years. God is undeterred in his desire to use Moses. He gets a little angry at Moses for continuing to say, nope, nope, not me, not me, not me. And God answers every objection that Moses had. But this is something we learn about God, something that I don't want us to miss today. That God is pleased to use human beings in spite of, of their fallenness. Moses was a fallen man. Moses was a murderer. In spite of their frailty, I, I, don't, I don't have the capacity to do what you're asking me to do. And in spite of their fear, I, I just am terrified. God delights to use human beings to fulfill his plan in spite of our fallenness, our frailty, and our fear. In fact, Randy Frazee in, in the story study this week says this, 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 this great thing, and I, and I don't want you to miss it, and I hope you see it in your life groups this week. He says, Moses' weakness is a channel for God's strength. Moses' weakness is a channel for God's strength. God doesn't need perfection to bring about his plan. Isn't that the story that we've seen? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, his sons, they weren't perfect. They had warts, they had issues, they had problems, but God delights to use them anyway. But my favorite objection of Moses, and one that I hadn't seen uh, prior to this in all the times that I've studied, and it's it's not even raised so much as as an objection, as a a question, but Moses is is letting God know something. He's telling God, I really don't know you that well, and, and, and Moses says to God, God, what am I supposed to tell them you, who am I supposed to tell them you are? If I go back to the Israelites, if I leave the the, the Arabian Peninsula, if I travel across Sinai, if I go back to Egypt, if I make this journey, and I've got to look at my former brethren and say, somebody sent me, who am I to tell them sent me? Look at verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. For those of you who are new to biblical studies, in Hebrew, that word is Yahweh. Or what has been transliterated into the English for many, many years as Jehovah, God. Which simply means I am what I am. I am who I am. I am. I will be what I will be. This, this is the answer that God gives to Moses. I am. He's not Horus or Osiris. He's not Zeus or Poseidon. He's not Baal or Marduk. He's it. He is existence itself. Think about that. That's the name he gives Moses. I am existence itself. I am that I am. He figured it out like, you know, I don't know. He told Moses this 3,400 years before Descartes figured it out. I think, therefore, I am. 
I'm sorry, I went to college. Anyhow, uh, forgive me, there's like four people who laughed. They all enjoyed the Descartes reference. I almost flunked philosophy. Anyhow, the whole idea is God is, is, is saying, I am, I am existence itself. I am the creator, the sustainer of the universe. And you are about to see my power displayed in such a way that the world has never seen before. No Egyptian god or goddess is going to be able to stand up to who I am, Moses. I'm not going to give you some human name. I'm just going to go ahead and call myself existence. How does that sound? I am who I am. You know the story. Moses goes back to Egypt. His brother Aaron goes with him to be a spokesperson for Moses who is slow of speech and slow of tongue. Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says over and over and over again what little Lily Roper said this morning. Let my people go. Pharaoh, who fancies himself the most powerful man on earth and the keeper of the gods of the Egyptians, is not impressed. And as he refuses over and over and over again, God brings nine plagues upon the Egyptians. Blood, gnats, frogs, flies, cattle, boil, hail, locust, darkness. Each one of these plagues is a thumb in the eye to the Egyptian gods, for they all in some way have a connection to these particular events. Nine times, Pharaoh has the opportunity to repent and to relent. Nine times, the Egyptians could have got away with their sin scot-free. Nine times, they could have just let the Israelites go. But the pride and sin of fallen man, especially of one who thinks himself powerful, is great. And so a tenth plague is brought. A plague of judgment. Whoever curses you, I will curse. Genesis chapter 12. Nine times Pharaoh in Egypt had a chance to repent and to relent. But the tenth time is judgment. And it becomes known as the Passover. God sends a death angel to the land of Egypt. And as judgment for the slavery and murder on his people, the firstborn of Egypt will die. Except of those who know and serve the Lord. I want you to turn your Bibles to chapter 12. We see the institution of what is known as Passover the very first time. And in chapter 12, verse 3, Instructions are given on how to survive judgment. Tell the whole community of Israel, verse 3, that on the tenth day of the month, each man will take into his household a lamb for his family. Then look at verse 7. After killing the lamb, they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frame of the houses where they eat those lambs. And then look at verse 13. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. 
And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. From that day to this, the Jewish people still celebrate Passover because that blood was a sign that that person knew and feared the Lord and did not participate in the sin of the Egyptian people. Why, though? It's interesting. Why? Why did God require them to make a sacrifice? Why did it have to be blood on the door frames and doorposts of that house? Could it just be that even though judgment was coming against the Egyptians that day, that God being no respecter of persons required a sacrifice on behalf of his people as well? Could it just be that the Israelites were sinners too? Could it just be that God wanted to make sure that they knew that their perfection was not what saved them, but God's mercy was what saved them? Could it be that the sacrifice that we saw way back in Genesis chapter 3 is brought back to the fore once again to remind us that the weight of human sin is great? And the penalty for human sin is even greater. And that a sacrifice of serious nature needs to be made for humans to recognize that they need the mercy and grace of God to cover their sin. God could have just looked at the Israelites and said, you're an Israelite, I'll pass over. But he didn't. He required the sacrifice of a Passover lamb. Nearly 1,400 years later, a final sacrifice was made. A final Passover lamb was hung on a cross for the sins of humanity, for everyone, to remind us that whether you feel like you're in God's good graces or not, you are a sinner, and you need mercy and grace and redemption from God in order to be delivered from sin and death. That night there was a wailing heard in Egypt, but not among the Israelites. By night Pharaoh called Moses to the palace and said, just get out of here. That's my paraphrase. Just go. But God gave his people instructions. He says, before you go, look at the Egyptians and say, could you send me with something? In fact, I'm heading out into the desert And we find out that the Egyptians heaped treasure upon the Israelites, making recompense for 400 years' worth of slavery, provided the means for those Israelites to survive and come into the land that God would bring them to. But human sin didn't end there. As they escape Egypt, Pharaoh has a change of heart, and he decides to send his chariots after the Israelites either to kill them or bring them back. The Israelites, with their backs up against the Reed Sea, cry out to God for deliverance. Moses stretched out his hand, it says. Look at chapter 14, if you wish, verse 21 and following. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. 
The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. God delivered them through the waters. When the chariots went to follow, you know the story, God stopped the wind, and Pharaoh's army was destroyed. God saved his people utterly and completely. Deliverance. What an announcement, huh? What an introduction of Yahweh God on the world stage. Taking on the most powerful man on earth, the representative of the most powerful pantheon of gods on earth, setting his people free, destroying a pursuing army in the wake of this freedom. We see his name and his power displayed. But we learn so much about the God that we serve. We learn so much about who he is because the pattern that he puts in place with Moses and God's people is a pattern that extends to us today. We learn so much about God. And the first thing, that we don't want to bury the lead here, God has, does, will save his people through a sacrifice. This story of Scripture is not a disjointed bunch of individual stories. But when God declares who he is and what he has done and what he is going to do, he lets us know exactly how he's going to bring about his salvation. And the sacrifice of those first Passover lambs reminds us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And that all of us need God's grace and mercy to be delivered and to have our sins passed over. It's not about our righteousness or our perfection. Moses wasn't perfect. The Israelites weren't sinless. And neither are we. But today we celebrated through these communion elements the fact that the Passover lamb has been sacrificed. The blood of the lamb has been applied to the doorpost of our lives. And we need not fear the judgment of the Lord. If you stand here today and you are feeling like you are not part of God's family because you are imperfect, I encourage you that you are part of God's family so long as you believe that he has died on behalf of you. That his blood can cover your sin. That it's not about being a church person. It's about being a delivered person. That's what God has done on our behalf. Second thing is that God keeps his promises in spite of human sin. You may feel like you were given a raw deal in life. That so much has been done to you, so much is being done to you, that God can't make it for the good. Read the story of the Israelite children. God can make it for the good, and he can, in spite of human sin, bring about his will and his plan. He keeps his promises. What he says is true. And what he can do in and through human beings, regardless of their fear and their frailty and their fallenness, is incredible. God employs people to accomplish his plans. He wants to use you today he wants to use you tomorrow. 
in spite of your fear, in spite of your frailty, in spite of your fallenness, in spite of all the reasons that you would object to him, God, I can't. He would say, no, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. That's who God is. Imagine today if, if, if just we as a church changed our mindset and stopped looking at the call of God that he places on our lives and looking at it and going, God, I can't because I'm not a good enough person. Check. I don't, I don't have all the abilities to, to do that great. Check. I'm afraid. Check. Remember that last one of Moses? I don't know that I know you well enough. Check. And God said to Moses, go anyway. Do it. I've called you. What is God calling you to that you've been objecting to and objecting to and objecting to? Because God has a deliverance today. He has a plan today. He has a desire for your household for your workplace, for your school, for your neighborhood, for your community. And he needs a faith-filled people to say, no, I can't, but yes, you can. He needs some Moseses. He needs you to be one. He needs you to step out in faith and say, God, I know I can't, but I'm positive that you can I know that I have fear and frailty and fallenness, but I know that you have a plan and I am going to partner with you in accomplishing your will. The great deliverance that God brought to the Israelite people was highlighted not because Moses was uniquely qualified and the best leader in history. It was highlighted because Moses was fearful, fallen, and frail, and God accomplished his will anyway. God can have that same type of victory in your life. I don't have the time. Welcome to the club. I don't have the health. Welcome to the club. I don't know that I know God well enough. Welcome to the club. Whatever your objection may be, God still has a plan. Will you partner with him? He just needs your faith and your belief in saying, yes, you can. Yes, you can. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? God, we are supposed to read this story and be impressed with you. God, we thank you for people like Moses and Miriam and Aaron, but we're to read your story and be impressed with your power and your plan. I'm impressed. I'm impressed with this continuing theme of sacrifice, Lord. It reminds us that human beings are sinners and you have not forgotten but Lord, you've made a way to cover our sin and make us clean. I'm impressed with your power, Lord. Power that can be displayed in Egypt, in Israel, in the United States of America, in a little village called Balvan Yosh in Hungary. I'm impressed with your power to accomplish your plan. And Lord, I'm impressed when I look out and I see your people. People who are fallen, not perfect. People with issues, hang-ups and hurts. But people who have you have used mightily to do your will in spite 
of fear and frailty and fallenness. God, what is true of you was true yesterday, is true today, and will be true tomorrow. And until the day, Lord Jesus, that you return, you will continue to use people to accomplish your plan. So, Lord, why not us? Why not us? Let us be a part of a great deliverance, Lord, a great redemption, a great chapter in your story. Today, I just encourage you, before we leave this place, to take a few moments with the Lord and ask him a simple question, Lord, what am I objecting to that you're calling me to today? Where have I heard your voice and said, no, I can't? Give me faith, Lord, to say, Lord, I trust that you can, and I will go. Let's just have a time of prayer for a few minutes in our seats today and allow the Lord to speak to our hearts.